0: Welcome to
1: the Entertainment Engine. Welcome to season two of the Entertainment Engine podcast. I'm Pete Moore.
0: And I'm Bex Gregory. This podcast was created by our company Seamless Entertainment. We're providing in-depth advice and information for creatives pursuing a career in the entertainment industry.
1: It's a great passion of ours and we're looking forward to sharing our knowledge with you all.
0: Each week we'll be bringing our listeners some great entertainment facts and news mixed in with special guest interviews from seasoned professionals who share their insight and experience of the business.
1: You can listen and subscribe to the podcast on all streaming platforms so you never miss an episode and what a bonus it's totally free.
0: And now it's time for part two of our conversation with Hollywood film producer and director, John Cry. Following on from last week's conversation, we learn about John's experience in Hollywood and he delves into his current projects, including his new film, Chance, starring Matthew Modine.
1: And I think in looking back at everything you've done so far as well, John, what would you say has been the best resources that have helped you on your way through the film industry?
2: really, I think um, there were two uh, that that were the, the the best resources for me. One um, one was that uh, when I was uh, a Sixteen-year-old, my first job was working at a, a video store back when there were video stores. You know, it was pre-blockbuster. Blockbuster didn't even exist, and it was like a mom and pop. No. <laughs> it was a mom and pop video club, and like people had to have a, a membership to come in, and like to show their card, and you know, and, and we were expected. We had you know VHS and Beta, and um, we were expected as the workers there to actually know the catalog and to know our um, our clients. There weren't that many any of their members. And so when somebody came in, I had to know what they had rented before and what I could recommend. Um, it was a really kind of like a librarian for movies, kind of a gig and um, and it was a wonderful job. It was for a, a little video store, it was a chain of them in uh, Virginia called Errol's Video. And um, and that was just a, an education because um, they wanted us to take home like six movies a night for free and I did. And I would just you know I just watched all these movies and um, it, so while I didn't go to film school i had uh, I had spent all of my you know high school and and college just kind of voraciously consuming film, uh, mostly older film as well. Uh, so that was a great that was a great asset for for the the understanding. and I think that I could translate that to anyone else to say if you have a passion for it, if you or if you're the kind of person who just is going to think about film regardless, then this is the right job for you. (laughs) If it's something that's already going to, you know, rent space in your brain, you might as well make a career of it. Um, the other thing that was a, a, a huge asset to me, um, was getting in with a group of, uh, like-minded creatives and just doing work. Um, I happened to meet several of those like-minded creatives uh, at Emerson College in Boston, where I went to school. But I don't think that uh, a film school education or a college education is is necessary um, so much as finding a group of people with complementary skills. If you're a writer, uh, you know, and you are all about the word, find a director that you like to work with that that you know needs a short written and write a short for him. And then when he makes, when he shoots that film, come to the set every day and haul cable and hang lights so long as there's no union involved to stop you. And uh, um, try to try to take part in as many of these um, these small detailed jobs, even the ones that you don't think that you are going to be interested in. Um, doing that kind of work Uh, And the willingness to do that kind of work is is probably the most important asset Mm. that you'll have.
0: Absolutely. And another area, I know, you know, it's been a struggle for everyone in the world at the moment. But how have you been dealing with the global pandemic, especially with the impact on the film industry?
2: Oh, boy. (laughs) In short, um, the money dried up uh, is is really what happened. I can put that shortly, uh, very succinctly. At the beginning of uh, 2020, actually end of 2019, um, I had put together money to um, get back into production. Uh, The last I shot a film in uh, 2018, um, uh, independent feature uh, called Chance, starring Matthew Modine. And... uh, i was putting together the money that was when i directed and i was putting together the money to produce another feature or another two features and um reconnected with my old distribution uh, relationships and with some of my old financing relationships and uh we were getting everything all set up and ready to go on a couple of projects and um and then the shutdown Mm -hmm. happened and unfortunately an independent film Every single film that you put together is is a brand new uh, endeavor. It's a brand new startup business that you've got to go raise money for and, you know, create banking relationships for and everything. And um, the investors, they generally speaking, they're private investors. And when they put their money to work on a film, they want to know, I'm putting the money in today and six months from now, there's going to be a feature that you're selling. And that way I can get my money back, you know, over here within x amount of months and when there's a shutdown and nobody knows how long it's going to go and nobody knew if there was going to be a vaccine and you know um the investors just pulled all their money back because uh they didn't want to have it sitting Mm -hmm. waiting to find out also with um independent film at least in the u.s the um the COVID insurance and the costs of the the quick result tests and things like that are, are prohibitively expensive for low budget films. Mm. So um, this past year, uh, we basically pulled our oars in um, and I spent the last year focusing on um, the development side of my business. Um, I'm a writer's coach. I uh, do the same kind of development that I used to do with New Market, but I do it on a consulting basis for uh independent film companies that maybe don't have their own development company Um, and i also work with individual writers as a coach so i kind of i I pivoted um to doing much more of that consulting uh and as well in in launching uh the elect stories which is a uh publishing experiment Hmm. that I've got going on right now.
0: Brilliant. So it sounds like you've been quite proactive, though. Use the time.
2: Well, I don't like to sit still, uh, for one thing, and and for another, I mean, I have been independent for for years now and you know if mm-hmm. you don't work you don't eat so no, yeah <laughs> exactly. yeah you find you you find a way yeah exactly and it's probably safe to say as
1: well john you're pretty good at development now i would think probably, yeah to be honest with you yeah. know what that is <laughs> you think you know what that is yeah yeah, yeah I, I, I i i think i can define it now anyway <laughs> yeah <laughs> when when um the the film you've done with Matthew Modine. Uh, Chance, that, uh, yeah, yeah, Chance
2: is um, it's uh, available for um, for pre order right now. They're rolling it out uh, as VOD first. Um, okay. On, yeah. So it's uh, you can pre order now. It'll drop on April first on. Uh, it's on uh, iTunes, Amazon, Direct TV, Redbox. Uh, I I think this might all be domestic. Unfortunately, it might all be U.S. Um, it's so it's it, it's uh, going out as a video on demand first, and then I believe uh, in July we'll start streaming. And I think at that point mm-hmm. will likely be uh, Netflix. Um, the film um, stars uh, Matthew Modine, uh, who, mm-hmm. you know, had been on Stranger Things and um, yeah. Tanner Buchanan, who's on Cobra Kai. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. I would imagine Netflix will probably be the home for that one. Oh,
0: yeah. Brilliant. Tell us a little bit more, uh, uh, you know, about the actual film. Is it quite an inspirational
2: story? Yeah, it is. Uh, it is. Uh, it's it's one that honestly, I um, it was a work for hire. Uh, um, I don't mean to diminish that, but it, it was one that it was not really a story. I probably would have chosen to tell on my own. Um, mm-hmm. It came to me, you know, uh, as a you know as a. Consultant. Um, There was a. This was one of my writing clients, uh, a gentleman who is not a writer. uh, uh, He's in his sixties, an insurance salesman, um, uh, and Mm -hmm. his passion in life is baseball. And so, all the years that he had been an insurance salesman, he had also built this beautiful. Uh, baseball park in this uh, small town in Ohio where he lives, Hamersville, oh, cool. Ohio. Yeah, and cool, um, and he ran that program for, you know, like 20 years. Uh, a lot of kids went through that program, but there was one, uh, it's called Flash Baseball, and they like, uh, you know, teach the kids baseball basics, train them up, and they would play uh, in this, what's referred to as travel ball or travel leagues, where they like tour around uh the region you know playing other teams uh in championships yeah. and you know it's a it's a pretty serious competitive uh form of baseball but um a lot of kids that went through that program and you know were able to get scholarships to college and you know go on and play baseball and and, and do other things you know leave the small town that they might not have otherwise been able to do uh but there was one boy named Chance Chance Smith who came through that program from the age 6 to the age 16 and was kind of uh, the heart of the team, kind of the, the, the life of that program. Everybody loved him. He was a, um, an emotionally brittle kid. Uh, his emotions were kind of all over the place and he wore them on his sleeve, but um, uh, beloved by, by everyone that knew him. And unfortunately, a year after he, uh, he left that program, uh, he committed suicide. he was seventeen years old. oh, oh wow. wow and um, here in the u s, uh, particularly in Ohio and in the, the the middle of our country here, there has been just an epidemic of teen suicide mm. um, oh. largely mm. because the middle of our country is is economically depressed. Uh, there are not a lot of jobs or or futures available to kids, but there are a lot of drugs mm. And uh, a lot of meth. And while drugs were not involved in this particular story, um, uh, I think a lot of the, um, the depression that just sort of lies over that area and over the, you know, the socioeconomic region there mm. um, may have contributed. But um, the story is told from um, you know, this, the perspective of the baseball coach uh, who is played by Matthew Modine. And uh, the boy, uh, you see him you know, age from six to 16 over the course of the film, he's played by three different very talented actors. Um, uh, as a 16-year-old, he's played by Blake Cooper, who um, was from the original Maze Runner film and is, yeah, uh, yeah. is really exceptional. Yeah. Um, he's a great young actor. Um, but they, um, uh, the story is really about the fact that as the adult in the situation, the Matthew Modine character, uh, Coach Mike, feels this horrible responsibility for the fact that he never saw this coming, that for you know a decade, of being a mentor to this kid, that it still blindsided him, and he will probably spend the rest of his life wondering what he missed. Uh, so, in other mm. words, it's it's not a real peppy, happy movie. No, <laughs> it's a, no. It's a, no, It's definitely uh, it's definitely a tragic film. Aww. But um, uh, it was it was developed um, as a form of catharsis, you know, for this gentleman, um, Michael Daly. Uh, he obviously, you know, had a great deal of love for this kid and for all the kids who went through his program and it really shook him. And, uh, he felt like if he could, if he could tell the story in a way, not only would it be cathartic for him, but also for this small town. I mean, there's, I think 800 people that live in that town. Everyone knew Chance and everyone was affected by his death. And, um, not only would it be cathartic for everyone involved, but, um, he was really hoping and 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 i hope this this is something that comes to pass he's really hoping that this is a movie that coaches will watch with their teams mm-hmm. of you know young men yeah yeah uh, that families will watch with their kids uh you know it is it is a family movie in that way yeah. because it very in a very um emotionally honest way it it deals with uh with suicide teen suicide mm. and while that is a hard thing to watch and i don't know that this is going to be a uh you know some huge hit film because it is that kind of uh mm. a message it's an important one and i'm and i'm proud to have been involved in it
0: yeah no no it really is i mean mental health and just yep. you know that mm-hmm. side of things is a really important message to send out i think um but it sounds really interesting uh, definitely worth a watch definitely, oh, definitely.
1: And i think. Um especially what's happened in the world as well John and, and we've got a, a big push in the UK with um, mental health at the moment with just mm. you mm. know with young people and uh, I think just with everybody across our whole country and I think it's not just a country wide thing I think it's it's an international oh,
0: yeah.
1: you know situation mm, yeah. so I, I don't think it's a bad thing and the other thing I was going to say as well is um, I'm actually quite a big fan's probably the wrong word but I'm actually quite a big admirer of Matthew Modine because I think he's a really good actor um, mm-hmm. He's really solid, and you, he's one of those actors you believe when he says something. And in, in my book, that's you know that's for me to watch a movie. And I just think he he's, he was a cool choice to play that person.
2: He's uh, he, Matthew brings a uh, a solidity to things. Like he just he knows the camera. He's been acting for so long. Um, directing him for camera. Uh, was so interesting because, I mean, he's been working cameras so long that he just, he knows how to, you know, to, to turn his head and hit that certain angle where he, you know, he exudes this gravitas, you know? He exudes this, authority Mm. and especially now as an older man he's got this you know white hair the bright white hair and everything these crystal blue eyes and he's just very um yeah uh he's got this this great air of authority and then when he wants to be warm the warmth comes through as well Mm. um uh something that was really interesting for me uh, in hiring matthew uh on this one as well was that we very intentionally created a bifurcated structure uh in the story um, where there is the there's Chance from age six to twelve, uh, where he is this young baseball player, and it's very much a baseball film. It's very much a sports movie. It's structured like a sports movie. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you get sort of a you know full three act structure about a you know a sports movie and a young boy playing baseball uh, that leads you up to a, about just a little bit past the midpoint in the film, and then it fades to black and comes back up again. Um, four years later, and he's 16. And aside from his parents and the um, and of course Coach Mike, the entire cast has changed, and the tone is completely different. Uh, it's now a teenage film. It is now a teenage romance with a triangle, and it is increasing. It gets increasingly dark, and um, the idea was to have. Two halves of the film, um, you know, the, the film Moonlight did this in in three parts, but to have two parts that feel complete to themselves, but if you have them side by side, uh, the meaning changes. It's one thing to have this, you know, sixteen-year-old Chance. Uh, no spoilers in the story. He's he's a bit of a he's a bit of a bully. He's a bit dark, and if you were to only watch the second half of the film, you would judge him. Uh, perhaps harshly. If you watch the first half of the film first, however, and you understand where this kid's emotional brittleness came from, it completely changes your empathy toward him. Mm -hmm. And the same same goes with the first. If you thought that this was this kid's story, you might judge him one way, but then you see uh, where the turn takes him. Um, Mm -hmm. And uh, having Matthew Modine play the coach was particularly interesting to me because the other film that i think of that is probably the most famous film with a bifurcated structure that way is full metal jacket yeah which yeah. also so stars Matthew Matthew Modine, Modine. Yeah. and yeah. and and it's two halves of, you know there's the there's the um training and then the basic training section yeah. and then there's vietnam yeah. and those two sections can be are completely separate yeah. but they inform each other so that was uh just as a as a film lover that was a very fun thing for me to be working with matthew that way
1: well i was I, again that was just a, an interesting point that i wanted to sort of make to you, john because i think i watched um on matthew's website when he was talking about his experience with stanley kubrick within with, mm. with full yeah. metal jacket and i suppose one of the things i wanted to ask you was did you sit down with matthew sort of daily did he come up with ideas about how he'd want to change the script or deliver a line was that sort of sort of communication quite flowing with you both? oh
2: yeah yeah yes uh and and um i'm a i'm a very collaborative um uh, uh person this is uh, this is the first feature i've directed i've directed a few shorts um but um you know i'm from a theater background and and uh i like to work with actors and i i, I like to collaborate uh, we were on Unfortunately, what uh, went from a 25-day schedule to a 20-day schedule and uh, and then because of rain, shooting in Ohio in June, <laughs> this will happen, yeah. uh, and outdoor shooting baseball and everything, we lost another like day and a half to rain. So yeah. we were on such a tight schedule mm. that there wasn't quite as much exploration as, as either of us wanted. Um, the only time that anything ever got heated on that set was a point where I think uh Matthew wanted to explore a little more than we could and we just you know right. the both the, the limits the, the limits of the story concerns right there uh meant that any improv he was going to do was going to require new scenes that we could not shoot yeah, yeah. um yeah. but um yeah. uh while while there were some things that it just you know we couldn't collaborate on in, in ways you know in that way if he was working on I'm sure working at higher budgets which what he's used to he could do that kind of thing Um, we couldn't accommodate that but um, he did there's a there is a coda scene to the film which I think is just a beautiful button to the film and just a, a, a really poetic button to the arc of the Mike character and Matthew wrote it Matthew wrote that scene
1: Oh, um, oh okay,
2: and uh, and he he sent it to me. He emailed it to me fairly early on in the process, and was like, you know, what do you think about this? And uh, you know, I was I wasn't the writer, <laughs> so mm-hmm. um, you know, I of course had to go back to the producer and, and writer and talk to him about it. But you know, fortunately, they agreed, and and uh, I'm happy they did because it it really is a it's an excellent button on the film.
1: Mm. No, 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 that's really pretty really really, and you say it be. We could see it in the UK, sort of July time. Is that
2: around? I, I believe that, yeah, by by the summer. Um, uh, I mean, it could could be earlier. Uh, I'm I'm fairly certain that this video on demand release that they're doing is is US only. Um, but I'm not exactly sure how Apple Movies works. To be completely <laughs> honest, uh, no, you yeah, know,
1: um, no, no,
2: uh, I, I think it's probably divided by region. Yeah.
1: yeah, yeah. Well, that's fair. No, that's fair. Yeah,
0: look forward to that.
1: Yeah, we will. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And I think this is this is an interesting point as well, John. The entertainment industry has changed you know radically over twenty years, let alone a week. Yeah. Where do you think it's going to go in the next say five minutes or ten years what do, you, what do you think uh
2: you know i I am a big believer in cycles and circles um that everything old is new again um I think that we are going to uh we're never going to leave behind the fact that um that we have a streaming and on-demand culture where you can watch things anytime you want. But, um, I think that we're going to see, um, theatrical, uh, releases come back. Uh, you know, people have wondered, will anyone go back to the movie theaters again? Yes, they absolutely will. Mm. Um, I think, I think they absolutely will. I think the theatrical experience is going to have to change and improve. Uh, it's needed to for a very long time. So this is an opportunity to do that here in the United States. Um, some of the, uh, there was a law that had been, uh, in effect since the 1940s saying that movie studios could not own their own theaters because, uh, they were monopolizing, you know, small towns, uh, that, you know, there were the films that couldn't get distributed because the studios owned all the theaters and, um, that law was just struck down. So, um, theater, uh, studios can own theaters again. So, um, you are going to see. My guess is over the next five years, Netflix will have a theater chain, Amazon will have a theater chain, Disney will have a theater chain, and you can see their content at home, or you can go and see it, you know, on the big screen. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and you'll have both, and they'll be curated by the same corporations.
1: Yeah. So, do you think? Um, do you think we're seeing more? actually coming onto streaming platforms where people won't go to the theater or do you think theater will still survive
2: i think it, it will still survive for some films i think yeah. that you're still going to see um uh, like for instance um i, I personally feel uh, you know i was a i was a marvel comics reader you know from the <laughs> 70s yeah. and uh and I feel like, you know, WandaVision and some of the things that I'm seeing they're planning for the, for the TV series, for the, the Disney, you know, uh, streaming series, feels much more like the comic books to me. I felt like all of the Marvel movies, while well, it's been wonderful to see these characters, they've always felt reductive because comic books were soap operas for boys. You know, they, you, you were getting into the inner lives of characters and over, you know, weekly or monthly issues, you know, it was the the continuing story and doing great big tentpole movies doesn't really make sense for that. Um, You can't tell the same stories. So I feel what Disney is doing is what you're going to see the larger industry doing, that there are going to be some stories that are smaller and just make sense to be series. And those will be multi-episode and they'll be streamed. And then there are going to be some things like the Avengers that are great as um big spectacles that people want to go out with a group of their friends on opening weekend and and see it you know you'll still have the big
1: circus movies the
2: big the big spectacle movies there'll be fewer of them but that was already true yeah you know when i when i first um moved to los angeles in 1998 it was like you know um universal made something like it was over a hundred films that year and like Mm. in the past year they've made something like you know eight you know mm-hmm. that uh, studios just they don't they don't make the content like they used to uh, on that scale they uh, they buy and distribute lower budget content so um, from guys like me so uh, I, you're going to continue seeing the big spectacle of films and theaters and then you're going to see the the smaller, more interesting stuff maybe uh, just on streaming. I also believe that that um, there will anytime you have a thing there's an opposition so uh, we're going to have all these big studio owned theaters you will also have independent theaters and there will be counter programming yeah um yeah that you know if disney is owning the theaters and you're like i don't want to go to another disney movie well up the road there will be an independent house that will have the new memento and you'll get to you know the new donnie darko you'll get to see that there
1: yeah
0: Mm. yeah and So John, from your perspective, um, for people, you know, wanting to start out in film, you know, to pursue a career, what advice would you give them if you could name like one piece of advice, for example?
2: Um, Start now. (laughs) Don't wait. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Start now. Um, Because you're not going to figure out what it is that you really want to do. I mean, like I said, I didn't know that development existed, but I really like it. Mm -hmm. Um, I I love development. Uh, I love story structure. I love thinking about, you know, I love narratology. I love the way, you know, that the study of how storytelling affects your brain, that that kind of stuff is really interesting to me. And um, and yet when I moved out here, I, I was an actor. And, you know, uh, and a vaudevillian. I had no idea that I was gonna be so into this stuff. So, um, so get in, get your feet wet and try a lot of different angles uh, of the business because um, you, you, you might think you know how everything is done, but you don't. There are gonna be jobs that you didn't know existed. Try them. Um, in doing that, uh, not only are you gonna find that the thing that you like to do, but you're also gonna end up meeting a bunch of other people who are also driven and working. And that will be your Hollywood.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: You know, the, people will ask me, you know, how do you, how do you break into Hollywood? You can't kick down a door that isn't there. There is no such thing as Hollywood. There's not one. You know, I've been working here for 25 years. All the films that you've listed, I would think that you know, a lot of people listening would say, okay, well, he's from Hollywood. He's been involved in these, you know, these movies, Brad Pitt or Chris Nolan or whoever. But, um, there's, you know, I still think of Hollywood as being, you know, Steven Spielberg. Mm-hmm. I'm never going to meet that guy. You know, <laughs> I've, uh, I've met Mel Gibson. I've released a film for him and he is, you know, Hollywood definitely, mm-hmm. but I'm not, you know, uh, the, I, I still think of him as, as a different, uh, strata. He's in a, lives a completely different universe than I live in. So, um, I I wouldn't say that his Hollywood is better or worse than mine though, Mm. but you build your own Mm. Hollywood and that Hollywood is the people that you work with and the people that I'm working with right now in uh, 2021 are the same people really that I was working with in 1998 Mm. by and large, you know, it's the same network.
0: Mm. Some really good good points you yeah, made yeah, there.
2: Yeah, he's good actually. You're in yeah. Hollywood. I like that. Yeah, I like that. You, yeah, you're you you're well you're you know, think yeah. about this. You know, especially in the music business uh, as well. When You write a song. Somebody puts a song out in the world. You you hear that? Oh, millions of people love this song. No. You're not going to mm-hmm. meet them. If you perform a concert, you're going to see a you're going to see a certain number of them, uh, and it could even be if you're in a huge concert, you could see you know hundreds of thousands of them, I guess. But um, but that's all that you're ever going to see at once, and you're not in seeing them this big you know roaring wall of, of people. Um, you're also not meeting them. Mm-hmm. You'll you'll this idea that oh, I'm going to be beloved by millions. Being beloved by millions feels no differently different than being beloved by two or three people because you're never going to meet millions. No,
0: mm. that's
1: right
2: you know so so uh so this this you know this whole idea would be like oh this celebrity and being a star and being hollywood it really doesn't it it doesn't uh it doesn't affect the day by day of how things work so if you're doing if if you're enjoying your day by day and it's making something creative and and you're working with other creative people and you're you're making art then you've already done it you're already there Stop trying to climb up to the top of the mountain. There's nothing up there. <laughs> You're <laughs> already doing it.
0: Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's true. <laughs> and if you could change anything about the entertainment industry, what would it be, do you think? Uh,
2: um, uh, well, I think that the, the one thing I've been hoping for, um, which is the, uh, uh, the powering down of the agencies, I think that is starting to, to happen. I think the, a lot of the, the power that had been held by the agencies is, is breaking down and I would like to see that happen. Mm. Um, I would also, I would love to see, you know, a new age of Medici's, of of patrons that, uh, there are a lot of wealthy, wealthy people who um, could be investing their money in film and I would like to see that happen. Mm. Uh, a lot of people believe that film investment is dangerous and risky uh, and historically It has been, but it doesn't have to be, uh, particularly right now. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, so I I would like to see if if there was one big change I would like to see is that I would like to see more individual investors, regular people investing uh, in film by regular people, regular people with the money, of course, to invest in film, not like crowdsourcing, but, you know, people who were instead of opening that yogurt shop, Mm -hmm. instead of investing in the, you know, the ties for your dogs how about you take that money that you were going to put into whatever this business is and invest in a feature film
1: mm-hmm.
2: um i think that if more investors from across the board were investing in film we'd have more interesting films yeah
1: yeah I, I'd, I'd agree with that and i think also as well uh, john some some experience that I suppose some experiences that i've faced over the years is when you're trying to mix creative with investors and again you get a project come to you that doesn't quite stand up or or you haven't got the right information or the investor sort of Mm. says they've got the money amount of times i've gone in front of people and they say oh yeah we've got we've got millions of dollars and it turns out they've got 10 quid and you go
2: <laughs> yeah. yeah that's that's, uh, yeah. Uh, that, that's the, the the euphemism that i hear in the film industry maybe you hear this is um that they have access to funds mm-hmm. yeah and yeah that's not the same thing as having money uh and and i always phrase it as like i i know where i can get a lamborghini <laughs> that doesn't mean that I have a Lamborghini. Yeah. 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 You know? Uh-huh. And so yeah. don't don't tell me that you have money if it just means that you know someone who has money. That's not that's not the same no, thing. No.
0: Completely different. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, <I> think-
2: <laughs> and that and that uh, I see a lot of I see a lot of film deals fall apart because the because people will sell this sort of lie about having the money uh all down the process. I'm assuming they're going out and hoping they're gonna pull the money together before they have to show it. Yeah.
1: Yeah. You know, like, yeah. well,
2: maybe if you guys get your actors on board, then I'll be able to turn around to my investors and say they've got the actors. Then I'll get the money and then you can pay the actors. And it becomes this whole... Yes. Mexican standoff, uh, chicken of, and egg know,
0: kind of thing. Going yeah. On. Yeah. yeah, yeah,
2: and and then the producer's job is is running between the two, you know, gunslingers that are in the Mexican standoff and trying to convince each side that the other side has already shot. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. You know, like, are you going to take that? You yeah, pull your trigger. Yeah, you know? and it's like you, mm-hmm. um, and that's there's no reason for the business to be that way. Um, if people came to the table and said, I have X amount of money that I want to invest in this film and these are my stipulations. I can work with that, but um, far too far too often, it's a speculative business where people are coming to the table and not being honest about the assets they can present. Yeah, and I think yeah. I
1: think it's uh, some people just maybe it's the the illusion or the excitement they want to be involved, and uh, when it comes to mm-hmm. the actual crunch of actually doing something, it's it's yeah, they can't you deliver. can't do can't deliver. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, which is you know a shame, really, to be perfectly mm-hmm. honest. And I think, not, not to change tack, but if you wasn't in this profession, John, what other thing would you like to would you attempt? Would you like to do if you wasn't a filmmaker?
2: Um, well, there's two that I've I've actually um, been attempting. Well, one that I attempted before, and I really enjoyed it, and and I know that I could go back to it again at some point. Uh, and that is um, uh, being a librarian. Oh, okay. Um, okay. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I loved being a librarian. Um, I, uh, when we sold New Market Films in, um, in 2009, we sold uh, the company, sold the library and the company uh, because Chris and Will wanted to retire. And <clears throat> We sold the company to a Dutch holding group uh, called um, Exclusive Media. I called them the Dutch masters, <laughs> but, um, uh, they, um, they bought the company and I worked, you know, on, you know, for about a year, I worked for them kind of transitioning everything over, but, um, uh, I kind of lost a taste for it. There were, it was a very sort of a corporate field of that company. Um, I jumped over to another company that I helped form, you know, with one of the former, uh, members of Newmarket, a company called Reek and Hill, um, but uh, at that point, Chris didn't really want to produce anymore. He was only acquiring films. And um, uh, in the way the economy was around 2010, 2011, uh, I was being sent to festivals and basically being asked to acquire films by negotiating downward on filmmakers. Um, which is never what I wanted to do, you know, offer somebody less than what I know something's worth, you know, to try to strike a deal. I I, uh, I was not in the business for that kind of um, a more tooth and nail business. <clears throat> and so I quit. Um, I wasn't happy anymore. I was feeling really jaded. Uh, and um, I quit. I <laughs> walked out of the contract and uh, I spent... Um, About three years getting my consulting work really rolling. And while I did that, um, uh, I needed insurance because here in the United States, you have to have a job to have insurance. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so, um, and, uh, you know, working as a consultant, uh, you then have to make, you know, X amount of money before you can then get the insurance. And so, uh, I took a job uh, at, a, um, at an elementary school, uh, a public school, um, as a librarian, um, you know, reading to kids and taking care of the library and filing books and all that kind of thing. And uh, I spent several years doing that uh, my mornings, you know, from like 8 a.m. to about to 2 in the afternoon when the kids went home, and then I would go and do my consulting business at night. And uh, what I loved about it was it was quiet, and I could... I could just I could think after
0: mm.
2: years of being in an in, uh, in executive business, and you know I was doing the festival circuit and everything, and, and like I was gone, uh, you know, three months out of the year going to film festivals and acquiring films, and so just to be able to sit <laughs> in, in quiet was nice. Yeah, and then to um, I was when I was reading stories or telling stories, you know, to kids who are between the ages of five and ten, is very hard to be jaded when you're hanging out with kids <laughs> yeah. that are five to
1: 10, yeah, you know?
2: Um, yeah. They've never heard these stories before. No. It's like, you know, a five-year-old who's never heard the three little pigs, that shit will blow their minds.
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. um,
2: <laughs> you know, so uh, it was like, let's get back down to basics and, and, <laughs> and, and, and get back down to what stories really work. And that made me so happy, and I really enjoyed it. And were it not for the fact that the consulting <laughs> business you know, picked up to the point where I just couldn't do it anymore. I, I probably would still be finding a time to do it. Um, so I, I would, I could definitely see myself going back to the library. Um, and otherwise, I'm, you know, during this uh, pandemic, I've also... You know, turned back to writing um, and uh, writing prose and the publishing experiment that I was talking about, and you know, just, just being a uh, being a novelist uh, just that was very insulting. Being a novelist <laughs> would be a would be a a, a wonderful uh, career as well. It's brilliant.
0: So what's next for you then, John, in the year ahead?
2: Well, the um, the publishing experiment is, is ongoing. We're three months into uh, this experiment called The Elect Stories, which is a serial fantasy novel mm-hmm. uh, that we're publishing um, one chapter a month for the next 36 months.
0: Mm.
2: And... Okay. Um, each chapter is about 50 to 70 pages it's a you know fantasy adventure you know swashbuckling swords and sorcery story well, i like it um, i like it sounds good yeah. and uh <laughs> you know i i i really loved you know old you know, like pulp fiction pulp yeah. novels like yeah. robert e howard and fritz yeah. lieber and stuff growing up yeah and, and so um my partner in sharp cry todd sharp and i we, we both really love serialized storytelling and we were like you know we wanted to publish a magazine like publish a pulp magazine with these sort of monthly stories and it was just too expensive so um uh when kendall amazon kendall started doing this like direct publishing yeah, thing yeah um yeah uh, we could do that so we um every month we we've got uh, the third is available for pre-order right now the first two are for sale um and uh you know we're we're rolling them out um one a month for the next 12 months and then we will Release the you know collected volume of twelve, and then go on to the next you know season of twelve. Um, but uh, that's been uh, that's been a lot of fun. I, it's a story that I love writing. I'm not only a big Star Wars and and uh, uh, Marvel fan from back in the day, but also um, uh, a big uh, Dungeons and Dragons player and and a uh, big fan of Doctor Who. And uh, <laughs> having having grown up with like the like the Tom Baker era Doctor Who was all about cliffhangers you know it was yeah. all about yeah. serial storytelling and um and this this story kind of gets back to all of that you know the the stuff that i that i have developed and worked on as a uh, as an executive has been fairly uh, high-minded art films but when i come down to it i'm i'm a genre guy who, mm-hmm. who loves a good swords and sorcery story <laughs>
0: <laughs>
1: well i think That's stories good. there's always a story with um you know within us and i remember having a um Funny a conversation with one of the, the guests we had a little while, and he's a, a producer in Hollywood as well, um, and he's also a, a writer as well, um, John. And he said to me that every morning when he would get up, he would sit on the uh, sort of on the porch, and one of his uncles would tell a great story and, and captivate everybody, you know, in that day. But another uncle would mm. come out and tell a story, and everyone would walk away because he didn't know how to capture <laughs> people. And it would just sort of, yeah, it just, (laughs) and and we'd always say that everyone's got a story. And it just, Mm. everyone, when you meet somebody, it's like, how are you? What have you been up to today? What's your story? So we're always telling what our story is. Mm. It's just, we're just excited about what's the next story going to be. And I think capturing that on motion picture from book is just Mm. a great way to tell it, really.
2: It is. I think we get to a universal language, um, particularly with film. Um, but uh, I've—it it is very much inherent to my philosophy that um, storytelling is the way humans evolved. You know, that even before we had written language, we could tell each other stories, we could make sense of the world, we had myths and uh, um, fables that sort of made sense of things for us, helped us remember things. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm convinced that most um, superstitions um, are really just mnemonic devices, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. to, to help you. Re- how, how do you remember to do this thing? Well, well, here's the story that goes along with it. Yeah, you yeah, know?
1: yeah.
2: Um, and um, uh, you know, it's it's not at all about if you don't do this, the boogeyman comes. It's just this is the way to help you remember this thing. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I believe that that he, that humans, you know, evolved through this kind of storytelling, and and the narrative, the story that that we tell impacts everything about, um, about the future and the past of our society. I think, you know, for instance, uh, unfortunately right now we're dealing, uh, not to go too deep in this rabbit hole, but across the world, we're dealing with uh, this unfortunate, uh, wave of white supremacy and, um, and this real strange, um, uh, fascist bent that, that sort of pokes his head up out of Out of the well every uh, every now and then with humans, and um, I feel one of the one of the problems that we have in the way we teach our history is this idea that Western and Eastern history is completely separate, and um, the idea that um, Western civilization somehow emerged wholly separately from from the East, and whereas if you are aware of history at all? Then you know that there was a constant traffic between the east and west. Marco Polo was not the first and not the last. Not and not. there was there was an enormous amount of trade uh, uh, throughout the world. And you know, um, uh, both uh, you know England and the colonial Americas were incredibly mixed and yeah. incredibly diverse. Yeah. And yeah. so, yeah. Um, if you understand history that way, um, it eradicates the idea of migrants are going to destroy something or we have to protect a certain culture. Because this I, this this culture that you think was ever pure never was. Mm. Uh, this thing that you ever think was was its own thing that's being overtaken. It never was that thing. It's a false premise. If we understand what the true narrative was, you you immediately dissolve these um these notions that are they're problematic and, and, and holding us back. And, and I believe that that same thing can, can be said of telling your own story as a person. Um, it's the reason why a lot of my consulting clients are individual clients like Mike Daly, who uh, wrote Chance that, that we produced and, and I directed. That was his personal story. And until he told it out loud, told it back to himself, and then shared it with other people, he really couldn't see those patterns you know, uh, in, in his life. Uh, and now that he's done it, I think that, I think he does. I've mm-hmm. had clients that have tried to write their life story. And as I'm helping them structure the story, they're like, you know, I'd say, well, you know, there's, a, there's a scene missing. There's a beat in this story that's missing. Structurally, this isn't working. What's going on here? And as we plunged more and more and more and dug at you know, why is there a hole in this story? We uncovered this whole thread of abuse through the client's family and through their life story that they had not been dealing with. And mm-hmm. uh, and it was, you know, I'm not a therapist, I wasn't trying to <laughs> oh, get to anything like that, <laughs> yeah. you know, but, but it yeah. was simply in working through the story structure, mm-hmm. uh, the client picked up on things that they had not really recognized in their life and in themselves. Um, and it just it's solidified for me even more this idea that um, storytelling, telling your story is therapeutic for you as an individual and storytelling that we share as a culture is therapeutic for us as, as humans as a, as a whole.
1: Mm. No, no, I I, I completely yeah. agree, John. And I think, mm-hmm. um, you know, the way the world is at the moment is... Um, no, it's not been positive, but I do think the one thing that is positive is people are consuming a lot more product on, you know, content, Netflix, yeah. Amazon content, music. Mm. You know, so we, yeah. th- so we think that is a, a a really really good thing. And to be honest with you, John, we could talk to you all day. But the last thing I want to ask you is where can our listeners find out more about you and your movies? Where, what, where, where's the best way of getting in contact?
2: Um, best way to, uh, best way to find me right now. Um, I, uh, am easily, um, I'm on Facebook probably way too much. Uh, John cry J O H N C R Y E. I've also got a company called sharp cry S H A R P C R Y E, uh, that you can find out there. I have a partner, creative partner named Todd sharp. Uh, I always say I'm not the sharp one. He is, uh, I'm, I'm the cry and he's the sharp. Um, and, um, uh, uh, we you can find us there. Um, the Elect Stories is uh, on Amazon and uh, Chance uh, starring Matthew Modine is is currently available for pre-order on Apple. Wow,
0: That's brilliant. Wow. Wow, John, it's been absolutely fantastic to have you on the entertainment engine today. It's been really brilliant, hasn't it, talking with you and just learning more about your whole career and your journey. It's brilliant.
2: It's been it's been great to to to, to be on. I've uh, I've enjoyed the episodes uh, that I've I've heard previously. It's, it's been great to be a guest. Thank you.
1: And now it's that time again this week. It's over to Bex for the question of the day.
0: Here's a quick recap onto last week's question. The very first BAFTA award for best film was given in which year? And the answer is. 1949. Big thanks to everyone who joined in this week and sent in their answers to us. We pulled one name out of a hat, and here's a big congratulations to Jack from Birmingham in the UK who got the answer correct. I'll be back to you next week with more fun facts and a question of the day.
1: Well, that's all for today's episode of The Entertainment Engine, and thanks for listening.
0: Join us again next week as we'll be chatting with Ross King, Scottish television presenter, actor and writer best known for being the Alley correspondent for ITV, breakfast programmes, Lorraine and Good Morning Britain. In 2018, Ross was appointed an NBE for the services in broadcasting, the arts and charity.
1: Plus, we will have our question of the day and music and movie facts for our listeners.
0: It would be great to have your feedback on the show, so you can always drop us a message at any time. We would love to hear from you.
1: So make sure you subscribe to the podcast on your favourite podcast platforms so you never miss an episode.
0: Thanks for listening to the show, and remember to all stay safe. The Entertainment Engine.